0: All right, I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here safely this morning. We pray that as we continue to learn about uh, the the spiritual gifts and the role they play in, in the church, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to receive from your word. We pray that we would, uh, as always, that we would submit all of our all of our lives, all of our intellect, all of our wills to to your word and your word alone. Um, help me teach faithfully, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to start the second Sunday in our series and examine in some detail what each particular spiritual gift is, and then I'm going to give some practical words on how each of these gifts function within the local church. But before we get started, I'd like to ask a question. Why do you think learning about each spiritual gift, like what each spiritual gift is, and how they function, why do you think that is important for us to do? So would you say having like an intellectual knowledge of what the gifts are will help us or actually might be necessary to actually exercise or practice the gifts? We have to know what they are. To do them, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think that's. This is good. Yes, that is exactly right. Taking all my answers away that I have written down, so. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Um, so I think the best way to to understand the importance of the spiritual gifts and our understanding of them is to think about one of the main purposes of the body of Christ. Um, And that purpose is to glorify God through our honor and obedience to Christ. I would argue that we can't properly honor and obey Christ in a local congregation if we aren't exercising or ministering the spiritual gifts sovereignly given to us by the Holy Spirit. You see, something key will be missing in the life of our body if the gifts are neglected or not exercised or not taught on. And so I think there's a grave danger of a church becoming unhealthy because of their ignorance or, or, or willful lack of teaching on the nature and function of the spiritual gifts. So I hope it's clear, spiritual gifts and a right understanding and a theology of them This is the case I'm trying to make. It is vital for the health of our local body. And so I just want to quickly highlight three ways spiritual gifts affect the health of the church. First way I I think spiritual gifts affect the health of the church is that it creates unity through a diversity of gifts, which kind of seems counterintuitive, but it creates unity through a diversity of gifts. So if you analyze the, the New Testament texts, which speak about spiritual gifts, you'll see something similar about all of them. And I just want to look at one of these texts in, in Romans 12. So open up to Romans 12. And I forgot my Bible in my office, which is unfortunate, because I always say, I never trust a pastor without his Bible. Um, so can someone read for me Romans twelve verses four through five. Thank you. So James or yeah James Montgomery Boyce points out regarding these verses that there's a certain type of unity and a certain type of diversity that make up the local church. Notice Paul writes that the church is one body that is united in Christ and this one unified body has many members who don't all have the same function. There's a fundamental unity for each member in the church, as we are all united in Christ. But the unity is expressed through diversity. In this passage, Paul isn't talking about ethnic diversity, although I think that's certainly true of the church, but diversity in gifting given by the Spirit. And the way I think this enhances unity and doesn't hurt is that through our different giftings, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, I believe every Christian has a spiritual gift, and as we we exercise our gift, or gifts that God has given us, it builds up other Christians in the local congregation, which in turn creates a more unified body. So I'm arguing it is through the diversity of gifts and the exercising of those gifts in the local church that unity is actually protected and enhanced. So for example, if hypothetical member Molly exercises her gift of giving, and self-sacrificially gives resources to member Janet, when Janet was in a time of need, what happens? Janet is blessed because she's receiving tangible help for her need, which will cause her love to grow for Molly. So through the spiritual gift Molly received from the Spirit, the gift of giving, She ministered that gift to Janet, which in turn creates a love and trust in her for the body of Christ, which as a result is now more unified. So all that to say, it is extremely important that we understand what the gifts are so we can properly serve and edify the members of this body, which will result in a greater love and unity in the congregation. The second reason... um, that I think spiritual, a, a proper understanding of spiritual gifts leads to a greater health in the local church, is that I think it, it leads a proper avenue for leadership discovery in the church. And I got this one from John MacArthur, who argues that it is through members in a congregation regularly exercising their gifts that should be the primary way that churches find those that God has called into leadership in the congregation. Now, this isn't to say that a church should never hire from the outside, um, or obviously I wouldn't be here today, and I very much like being here today. Um, or it doesn't even mean that a, church, a local church can't consult how to find leadership from other sources. But, but I do think the typical way leadership should be found in a healthy congregation is that when members are exercising their gifts, it will become apparent to the body which men have the gifting to to teach the Word of God and thus be in consideration for eldership. Or it will become apparent which member has the gift of administration and thus be put into a role of ministry coordination or other administrative work. Or it will become clear which members have the gift of helping or the gift of mercy to be considered as deacons. So it is by a proper intellectual understanding of what these gifts are and how they function that we can better look for and call leaders from within our midst and our body, which is essential, this is key, that is essential for the long-term health of the local church. And the final reason, third reason, a proper understanding of spiritual gifts is important for a healthy church is what is typically called every member ministry. Every member ministry. And we're going to talk about this one a lot more next week. But put simply, the health of each local congregation rests upon the degree to which each member actively exercises his or her gift in the body life of the church. I think that's an important sentence. I'm going to say it again. The... the, The health of each local congregation rests upon the degree to which each member actively exercises his or her gift in the body life of the church. So every member ministry is the belief that every member in the congregation, which we believe every member of the church should be regenerate, meaning that they, they have the Holy Spirit living in them, and thus they have been given a spiritual gift. So every member then has a a gift and thus has a role to play in the ministry of the church. John Stott has argued, I think really helpfully, that failure to recognize this in a congregation can lead to what he has termed, and I really like this term, the, the clerical domination of the laity. So in other words, there's a division between the laity and the clergy, whereby the laity just give money to the paid clergy to do all the ministry in the church. And I think there's many problems with this, but chief among them, for our purposes, is that this type of centralized ministry to to the paid pastoral staff leads to the church actually suffering because the many members with gifts given to them by God for the building up of of the church are never used. So again, it is vitally important we define what these spiritual gifts are So we know exactly what the New Testament is talking about when we exercise these gifts so that the overall health of the church begins to flourish. So, to summarize that relatively very long introduction. Knowing what the spiritual gifts are is vitally important to the health of our body. So now let's get into what exactly the spiritual gifts are. Schreiner, and I believe most other New Testament scholars, um, at at least the ones I reference, agree that there's four spots in the New Testament where Paul references or teaches on the spiritual gifts. First is Romans chapter 12, which we had just looked at, but the two verses after that, verses 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and following, and then Ephesians 4, 11 and following. And working from these texts, Schreiner gives this definition for spiritual gifts. He says, spiritual gifts are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. So spiritual gifts are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. So let's explore this definition just a little bit. I think it's a really good definition of spiritual gifts. So first, Schreiner argues that the gifts are gifts of grace, meaning the gifts are something given to us by God, completely up to His good pleasure. In other words, He gives what He gift, give, He gives what He gifts. He desires to give each of us, and it has nothing to do with anything in us. It's it's up to His Sovereign good pleasure, and it has really nothing to do with natural gifting in us, although, although I think those two, natural gifting and, and spiritual gifting, aren't always opposed, but oftentimes they work together. Schreiner points out that the Greek term charismata, which is a, a term used by Paul when, when teaching on spiritual gifts, specifically in First Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, it emphasizes that phrase that the spiritual gifts are given just as that, gifts. Charismata is based on the Greek noun charis, meaning grace. And Boyce, who who I'm going to be mentioning quite a bit too, along with Schreiner, he states, Since grace is God's unmerited favor, the emphasis is that spiritual gifts are dispensed by God according to His good pleasure. One Christian will receive one gift, another Christian another. And so, notice. I think, keep for us. This is solely up to God's choice, His good pleasure, of what He chooses to give gift each one of us. The final thing I want to, to want us to see in this definition, before jumping into the particular gifts, is that Schreiner argues that the gifts are designed for the edification of the church. These spiritual gifts that that God has given us are not for our own personal gain and glory. And this might go without saying, but I think it's important in our cultural moment where it seems like to do something meaningful, you need to have a large platform or influence. And I think that is a lie. God has gifted, if you are in Christ, God has gifted you with a spiritual gift for the growth of the saints at Evangelical Fellowship. Or if you aren't a member here, then God has gifted you to, to serve the saints of that congregation you're in membership in. And I just want to encourage you before we jump into these that there's, there is nothing more significant you can be doing with your life than exercising these gifts God has given you in the life of this particular congregation. No matter how insignificant it may feel at the time. This is amazing, eternally significant work that God is doing through your gifting in our little congregation. I mean, this really fires me up. It's an amazing truth that God is allowing us to participate in his ministry. So, any questions in all of that? We're about to start with yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think there's I think there's freedom to disagree on exactly how to best answer that. I think we are going to be talking about that in a couple weeks, um, just the role of the the role of the gifts outside of the church. Um, but I would say I still think primarily the gifts, even if they are used in a parachurch ministry, should also be used primarily in that person's local church. So it can't be at the expense of the local church. Yeah, I think that's well said. I agree. So ready to move on to the actual gifts? Yes. So we're going to go through each gift, each of the gifts, except prophecy and tongues, because they each get their own week. So you can come back. It's going to be fun. Um but I'm going to give a brief definition and talk practically how these gifts function in a local church context. And sometimes think about, which I, I find this helpful, how the local church would, would struggle if individuals with these gifts don't actually exercise them. Um, so it's going to be fun. And you, you can stop me at any time during through these. I'm just going to motor through these. Um, but feel free to stop me if you have any questions or comments. So number one which is actually two or three. Teaching, the spiritual gift of teaching, which Shriner also puts um, the, the spiritual gift of the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom under this same gifting. So teaching and the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Again, Shriner believes these two gifts are referring to the same thing. And I think I, I largely agree with him. Shriner admits that the, the first gifts we see here in, in 1 Corinthians 12.8, which are the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, are probably the hardest of the gifts to define and pin down exactly what Paul is meaning. A popular interpretation today is that to have the word of knowledge gift is to have an academic understanding, intellectual knowledge, typically of of the scriptures, but sometimes people would say of, of any discipline, while having the word of wisdom gift is having the ability to apply that knowledge in life which I think this, this might actually very well be true, but Schreiner argues this is an unlikely interpretation because there really isn't any biblical justification to distinguish these terms that sharply. Um, another interpretation which I do disagree with for a word of knowledge is, is having a supernatural understanding of another person's sin, personal problem, illness, and, and so on. So maybe you've heard somebody say, God has given me a word of knowledge regarding something in your life that maybe you don't even know. Once I was in a doctor's office waiting room with my son Ezra. I think he was about two or three at the time. An older man came up to me while we were sitting there and he said that the Lord had given him a word of knowledge at that moment that my son would be a great military leader. And I was like, (laughs) Well, I thanked him. I didn't know what to do. But in my mind, I was like, I surely hope not. That sounds terrifying. But Schreiner argues that this understanding of the term fits more closely with the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, which Paul has already mentioned in this list in 1 Corinthians 12. So what Schreiner argues is that the word or message of wisdom or the word of knowledge is referring to the same gift as the gift of teaching. And he lists a couple of arguments here for why, and I'm just going to mention one of them for time's sake that I find most convincing. And that is Paul doesn't mention the gift of teaching in 1 Corinthians 12 and um, and verse 8 and following. And given that the gift of teaching is included in the other three texts in the New Testament on spiritual gifts, it would seem the gift of teaching was particularly important to Paul. And so Schreiner makes the point that it seems unlikely that Paul would leave it out of the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12.8. So thus, you can conclude, right, the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom is describing the same gift as the gift of teaching. So, what exactly is this gift of teaching? I think it's pretty self-explanatory in that it is, as Schreiner says, expounding, explicating, and unpacking the word of God, and then giving instruction based on truth, that is already revealed. So in other words. For, for ours. And I, I guess every context. The spiritual gift of teaching. Is being able to rightly handle. And teach the word of God faithfully. It is different than. New Testament prophecy. Because teaching is not based on. New revelation. But on already revealed truth. You see the distinction. Now. Now in terms of the importance of this gift for the local church i think this is also pretty self-explanatory remember that when jesus gave the disciples the great commission he stated go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them you're supposed to say that teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you So notice, essential to the work of the church and our commission given to us by the Lord Jesus is teaching folks what Jesus has commanded. And God has called elders in each congregation to primarily be the ones who teach the the flock of God His Word. That's why it's important to realize that all elders in a congregation must be gifted in teaching in some way. Paul requires it in his qualification list of elders. Why? Why? Because it is through God raising up men who can faithfully explain and apply God's word to the church that God grows his church in, in maturity, that God grows his church in faithfulness. So, conversely, the neglect of this spiritual gift being exercised in a congregation is utterly catastrophic. There is no more surefire way to severely weaken a church than to appoint elders who don't have this gifting. Who who aren't able to teach, and can't rightly handle the word of God. Yes. Yeah, I think I think Schreiner would agree with you in the book, and um, that it's kind of an arbitrary definition to just say it simply means doing, um, where knowledge is knowing. Um, so I hope that comforts you. I don't. Know. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a, it's a little outside of the scope of our study, um, but I will look it up and talk to you after. It'd be, that would be fun. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot that has been written and a lot has been said. Uh, it was very wise. All right. Um. So, yes, every elder must be able to rightly handle the Word of God. That's clear in Paul's instructions. I think it's important to make the distinction, though, that this doesn't mean every elder has to be able to preach wonderful, great sermons. But he must be able to rightly interpret and explain the text. Um, And teachers, in at least some capacity, have to be able to do this. It's necessary for the overall health and growth of the congregation that the elders properly exercise their gift of teaching when when it edifies and which it then edifies and serves the congregation in so many ways. I also think it's appropriate that just based on this gifting that God has given to us through through these men, that that we thank God for the gifting of teaching that God has chosen to give the elders in this congregation, because it, it ultimately benefits yours and, and and my my soul greatly. Pray for your elders and pray we would exercise our gifting to teach well in this congregation. I think that's a right application um, of this. And I think it's important to say, I also think non-elders can have this gift. And I'm thinking particularly of women who are, who are gifted to teach, but exercise that gift faithfully in the congregation by teaching other women and, and children. I think that is a huge blessing and an absolute necessity for the health of our congregation. So, that's the gift of teaching. On to number two, exhortation, the gift of exhortation. So, exhortation is very similar to teaching, but but Schreiner argues it conveys more of the idea of being able to urge others to, to live righteously, to pursue righteousness, and showing care for the afflicted and the distressed through the ministry of the Word. So, Boyce argues the gift of exhortation is being able to encourage disciples to press on in the things that they have learned in the word. And they do this through right, a faithful application of the word of God. So Schreiner would put biblical or pastoral counseling under this gifting of, of the church. Also, he, he mentions preaching probably represents a combination of both teaching and exhortation. The most gifted preachers are both able to explain what the text means and how the congregation is to respond in different contexts and live righteously based on what the word of God says. And Schreiner makes the funny point, I think, that that's right, at least for me, that most preachers probably have a strength in one of these areas, either explaining or or teaching or or exhortation. Um, But, both are necessary, I think, and an effective preacher. But non-pastors, I think, also have this gift, and the strength they bring to the congregation is being able to counsel other members and of, of what the Word of God requires of them and being able to comfort individuals with the Word of God in times of suffering and distress. That is a key, key ministry of the local church that members with this gift should exercise. I think there's there's really no other better balm for the soul than to receive godly exhortation from a fellow brother or sister in Christ. I trust you can remember a time in which you experienced being ministered to by, by someone with this gift of exhortation. You may not have known it at the time, but recall a time where an individual in the church counseled you, encouraged you to press on in faith or even challenged you to change the course you were on and repent, right? And they did this in an unusually powerful and effective way. This gift being exercised in the church, right, is helpful in in creating a culture of submitting to and, and trusting God's word to be living and active in our lives. Because folks with this gift... Right, they encourage and care for members in very concrete ways as they, as they seek to apply and minister the word of God to other members' lives faithfully. So that's exhortation. Any questions, exhortation? No. Number three. I think there's 11 of these, by the way. So we're on number three. Is the gift of faith. Faith. So faith is another spiritual gift that is hard to exactly pin down the meaning. I, I kind of struggled with it this week. We know that this gift can't be the same thing as saving faith because all Christians who repent and trust in Christ for salvation experience or, or have saving faith. So when Paul lists this gift in 1 Corinthians 12, he's referring to As Schreiner argues, having the extraordinary ability to to have faith or a vision for the future. Boyce writes that the spiritual gift of faith probably refers to the ability to look ahead to something God has promised and act as if it were already present. So the spiritual gift of faith is having the unusual unique ability to trust God's promises Boyce in his book helpfully ties this gift back to the Old Testament heroes of faith that were expounded on in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read a large portion of this text because I think it it helps to further describe exactly what the gift of faith has looked like throughout the scriptures. But it also helps us get a better understanding of what the gift looks like today for us. And it's just really good, better than I could say it, so we're going to read it. Boyce writes, The heroes of the faith faith, listed in Hebrews 11, had this gift, the gift of faith. In each case, their lives demonstrated the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. Abel, who had been promised salvation through the seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head, testified to his faith and that the future reality through obedience and the matter of the blood sacrifice. Enoch believed God and lived a righteous life. Noah accepted God's word about a future destruction of the ungodly and acted on that conviction by building an ark in which he and his family were saved. Abraham exhibited faith throughout his lifetime. He left his homeland for a land not yet seen, endured hardship in the land of promise, changed his name as a symbol of his faith in God's ability to provide for him with a son when both he and Sarah were past the age of childbearing. He was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice on an altar on Mount Moriah, all because he believed God was able to do what he had promised. After noting these persons in anticipation of other examples of outstanding faith to follow, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the author of Hebrews declared, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So, coming off this text from Boyce, we can see that that those with this spiritual gift of faith have a remarkable ability to not only trust in God's promises, which that's necessary, but also to order their lives around God's promises. Even when they can't fully see the reality of them yet. I think one obvious way this manifests itself in a local congregation and, and the church at large um, is that many of our missionaries who take the gospel to far-off nations, who, who risk the safety of not only themselves but sometimes their families for the sake of reaching the lost with the gospel, I would argue many of these individuals have the spiritual gift of faith. Right? They're able to order their life in such a remarkable way that they risk even their own livelihood to share the gospel because they believe that God is worth it and that his promises of an eternal resurrected life are true. Right? That's a, an extraordinary amount of faith that is unusual. Um, and I think it, it, it attests to a, gifting of, a, a spiritual gifting of faith in those individuals' lives. Isaac Watts in his hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, which Boyce Boyce cites, captures this beautifully. And I'll try to get through this without tearing up. Um, But he writes in this hymn, Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die. They view the triumph from afar and seize it with their eye. And so perhaps maybe you you do do you sense a supernatural gifting in your own life to trust the promises of god even if it means losing your life because you can see the glory of the promises ahead i would urge you to consider going to the nations and serving the church of jesus christ by proclaiming and spreading the gospel to people groups who have no access to it right i think that's one of the many benefits of this spiritual gift for the church is that it, it, it causes the local church to then send individual members to the nations as representatives of the church of Jesus. And it's a great, great necessary blessing. Number four. Yes, I think that's exactly right, and it's key and something we're going to touch on, I think, either n- next week or the week after, that that these spiritual gifts are things that can be practiced and that you can grow in um, through discipline, prayer, other other um, spiritual means. So very good foreshadowing. Um, spiritual gift number four, they won't be all as heavy as faith. Um Distinguishing between spirits, distinguishing between spirits. So distinguishing between the spirits, which is also commonly referred to as the spiritual gift of discernment, is to have the ability to distinguish between what is true and what is false. Schreiner argues that folks with this gift know the scriptures very well, and thus are able to do as 1 John 4, 1 states, to, to test the spirits to see if they are from God. Um, and I think this is important, but before the establishment of the New Testament canon, this gift would have played a central role in the church for when teaching and prophecy was done, there would would be a need to distinguish whether or not what the teacher was saying or what the prophet was saying was true. They needed to be able to distinguish whether the teacher was speaking from the spirit of God or, 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 or an evil spirit. And I think in our context, this gift is exercised when an individual has the ability to discern whether the teaching done in the name of God or, or from Scripture is true or is it false. As we are all well aware, there, there there's many, many false teachings being taught to us everywhere. I think some probably inside the church, not this church, but the, the broader evangelical church. Um, some outside the church, just false teachings about the Christian worldview about the reality of God, and we're 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 pretty much bombarded by it. Um, so, folks with the spiritual gift of discernment are necessary for the health of the local church, as they can protect the flock from false teachings and doctrines. Boyce points out that there will always be, in every congregation, more immature believers. In a congregation who are prone to believe every next Christian fad that becomes popular in the culture. I think that's I think that's very right. And I think one of those right now uh, is, that we can, is that we can adopt secular forms of enacting social justice, like utilizing critical theory, without doing damage to our faith. I think that's a very popular view right now in some Christian circles. And I think that's it's a complex issue, but I do think congregations are served well to have individuals who can recognize the danger of this popular belief and protect the congregation from embracing it. Right, that's the, that's the, the, the nature of the working out of this gifting and the local body. And there's going to be, I think we're all well aware of this, there's going to be many and many more false and dangerous teachings that we will be tempted to, all of us, not just some of us, I think all of us are going to be tempted to believe until the end of time, until Jesus returns. So we need people in our congregations with this gift, right, to protect the teaching and the health of the congregation. Number five, Dennis. I think that's right. I think it's not, like, Schreiner would argue it's, it's an unusual an unusual gifting. Um, and I think you, you hit on the point I was just about to make. So the, the last gifts, starting with that one, um, let me try to, let me think if I'm saying this correctly. I think so. But they're sometimes called the gift of service, where the first gifts were the gifts of teaching, and prophecy and tongues would go into that one, um, in which all Christians are called to do these things, like, we're about to do helping and service. We are all called to help and serve one another in the body. Um, but both Boyce, um, I saw MacArthur and Schreiner, they, they would argue, um, which I think they're right, that if you have the spiritual gift of one of these things, say discernment, it is you're doing it, you, you have the ability to do that in an ex- extraordinary, extraordinary way um, or an unusual way. And I think you hit on why I didn't put that in my notes is because man made distinctions always fall in some in some way. Like that's good. I would have been more nervous knowing that going in, so thank you. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Number five, helping The gift of helping and service, same thing, helping or the gift of service. So the gift of helping, which Shriner believes is probably the same gift as the gift of service. This gift is one of the most practical gifts for the local church as it describes folks who are, here's that word again, extraordinarily able to give aid and render service in the body. So I think deacons in a local church are most likely to be gifted in this way, as that office requires a particular exemplary lifestyle of service. This gift, again, has many ramifications for the local church. Boyce helpfully states that individuals with this gift see what needs to be done in a church and gets it done. In my short time here, I think I have met several with this gifting in this congregation which is a wonderful, wonderful blessing that we should not take for granted. Boyce writes a particularly powerful illustration of how this gift manifests itself in the church. He writes, Some with this gift care for older people, buying groceries for them when they are unable to go out, cleaning, shoveling snow, taking them back and forth to medical appointments, or to visit friends or to church. Some with this gift help the poor, Psalm assists the sick by sending in food or doing the necessary errands until the sick person recovers. I think that's a, a beautiful picture. And do you see how, how practical this gift is in the ministry of the church? This is another crucial, necessary aspect of our life together in this body, meeting each other's needs. And individuals with this gifting serve the body so well as they sacrifice and serve others. And of course, to, to Dennis's point, here I've got to it, this doesn't mean that those who don't have this gift never serve. Schreiner has a, a funny quote in his book about this. He, he says, perhaps this is also the place to say that one can't refuse to offer practical help with the excuse that one doesn't have the gift of helping or service. And I think we're going to see something similar play out with um, some of the the rest of these gifts. So gift number six, administration and leading. Administration or leading. The spiritual gift of administration, which Schreiner, again, he does this a lot. He's he's bunching them together, which I think he's right, is probably the same gift as leading. It's pretty self-explanatory. Individuals with this gift are able to guide and direct tasks that need to be done within a a local church. Schreiner points out that this word in the Greek refers to to pilot or, or captain a boat sometimes. The idea is these individuals can know how systems operate, organize individuals to work effectively, and execute a plan to accomplish a desired goal. And I'm sure we are all well aware of how necessary this gift is for a local congregation. We can all probably think of a time, of course probably not in this congregation, of when there was work to be done, a mission to be completed and the, and the church, and, and many people willing to help, but nothing ever gets done because no one individual with this gifting of leadership or, or administration takes charge to, to, to lead out in accomplishing the task. Right. This is a. I think this is a problem. I think probably every church has experienced. Schreiner argues that if the individuals in this in, in a congregation don't exercise this this gift, what the result ends up being is a stagnant and a rudderless church. And I think that's right. So we need folks who are willing, able, and and gifted in this way to lead, administrate, so the work of the ministry that God has called us to gets done in an effective way. Now I'll also say I've, I've seen and or I've heard of individuals who use this gift as sort of a, an excuse to be domineering and sometimes just downright mean. Listen, I think this gift does not mean that you have an exceptional ability to be bossy. Leadership and bossiness are not the same thing, although I think sometimes we get that confused. This gift, of, of, if not having the ability to get something done, is not having the ability to get something done by force of personality or even an aggressive success-oriented success mentality. Boyce points out that the, the Lord Jesus most definitely exercised this gift in some way, but This is Boyce, but he did not boss people about, trample on feelings, or press on obstinately like a steamroller in order to accomplish some goal. And I think that's a really important distinction for us to make. People with this gift have an ability to organize and lead in such a way that reflects the character of Christ, which is in all humility and wisdom. So not bossiness. You can just write that down. Gift number seven, <laughs> to not be domineering. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> given, yeah. Given the context and personality, there is a need for um, some steamrolling. I don't know if I would use that, that word. <laughs> Correction. How about that? <laughs> All right, number seven. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. Actually, no, we're good. Um, number seven, giving. Giving. This, I think this is another gift that's pretty self-explanatory, and we see it in Romans 12. This gift focuses on giving one's wealth and resources to assist others. This is another one of those gifts that we're all called to, to do, right? We're all called to give of what the Lord has provided us for the ministry of the local church, but now, individuals with this gift give financially in, in remarkable and in unusual ways. God has gifted some within our congregation to be willing and happy to give sacrificially to the cause of the ministry, which is this is key, too. This is a remarkably important aspect for, of, the, of our church. The reality is, in our context, money is essential for the work of the local church. And, if in, and individuals with this gifting allow the work of the ministry to be done in local congregations without going into, going into debt or, yeah, just a lot, without a lot of practical um, baggage that comes with not having resources. And I think this is massively important for the overall longevity the the health and longevity of the church to last more than just one generation. Right? There's there's several accounts in, in church history of churches I think quite a bit of churches that that are planted exist for a generation but due to circumstances like not having enough money have to shut their doors. So so I'm arguing we need people with this gifting in the church. And I think our congregation is a wonderful, wonderful example of this. So I'm saying this to encourage us. Right? We pay two full-time pastors, and I'm obviously one of them. And so thank you. right? But we, we devote ourselves to the full-time care of shepherding and teaching you guys. That is a remarkable feat for a church this size. Very extraordinary and I think it attests to God blessing this congregation with individuals who have this gift of giving who give sacrificially and it it brings them great joy and blessing so again another crucial gift that is necessary for the practical ordering of our life together as a body is this gift of giving Um, yeah I, I meant resources which isn't helpful um uh, yeah, I guess it doesn't time. Uh, I'm trying to think. Anybody else have any ideas? Property—that's a good one. Property. Yeah. Say again. Particular skills. So that could also go into service. Um, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm primarily meaning wealth and resources for people who don't have wealth you can you can also have the skill. Um, number eight is mercy. So this gift is very similar to the spiritual gift of helping and service, but I think with mercy there's more of an emphasis on ministering to those in the body who are hurting emotionally or physically. It takes, I think it takes supernatural gifting to come alongside those in our midst who are suffering and hurting through various trials and pains. This is not easy work. And it is such an important work in the life of the church. Being able to sit with someone who is hurting and suffering takes such skill, wisdom. Honestly, it takes boldness, bravery. I'm sure we're all well aware that it can be very awkward and uncomfortable at times to, to minister to someone who's gone through tremendous suffering and pain. And yet, thankfully, by God's grace, he equips some saints within the body have this gift of mercy to come alongside those hurting individuals in such a way that ministers to the hurting person's soul. It is such a remarkable gift that God gives his church. And I think these, these individuals are a wonderful blessing to the church. And again, every Christian, right, we're all called to weep with those who weep in the body. But those with this spiritual gift of mercy have, as as Shriner says, a special knack of attending to those who are in pain. A special knack to attending. I'm sure we can all think of someone um, in our life who who has that. Gift number nine, evangelism. Evangelism. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul writes that, that God has given some in the church to be evangelists. We rightly don't believe this to be an office in the church, but rather a spiritual gifting. God grants certain believers for evangelism. So having this gift means that, as Boyce says, an individual possesses a special ability in communicating the gospel of salvation from sin through Jesus Christ. And according to 1 Peter 3.5, we're all called to be able to defend our faith and share the gospel with the lost. However, God grants some in our congregation a spiritual gift of being able to communicate the truths of the gospel in a clear and effective way to those who don't know Christ. Uh, one of the many things I loved about being at seminary is I got to meet and got to know a lot of godly men and women. And in my time in Louisville, I met quite a few guys that clearly displayed this gift of evangelism in my local church. And what stood out to me is that they didn't really do anything remarkable or revolutionary. They just built built relationships with people or sometimes went to, to where there were a large group of individuals and they boldly, faithfully articulated the gospel with no shame very clearly, very effectively. And I find that to be incredibly amazing and encouraging to me because I have to fight that in my flesh, just personally. I have a tendency to fear man and stay silent in sharing the gospel in public settings. So the effect these brothers had on me and what I think the, the effect individuals in this congregation have with this gift on others is that they give us confidence and an example of how to clearly and boldly share the gospel to the lost. They're, they're, they They serve as exemplars to the congregation, which is huge. This is very needed in a congregation because I believe one of the marks of a a healthy local church is that we need to be a people sharing the gospel with the lost frequently and faithfully. Number 10, the last two, the most controversial. Apostles the spiritual gift of apostles or apostleship. It's very debated today. Um, some argue, I think wrongly, that apostles are given to the church today as those are, who are sent by a church who do pioneer missionaries or who do pioneer missions. So a church sends out apostles to establish a church in a place where there is no existing church. I don't think that is what the New Testament is talking about. I think the spiritual gift of apostleship is a unique gift and office given to the New Testament church only. Boyce writes that apostles refers to those witnesses who were specifically commissioned by Christ to establish the church on a proper base. Schreiner says similarly, he says, The gift of apostleship is restricted to those who have seen the risen Lord and have been commissioned by him. So who fits within that gifting? I think that the 12 apostles... Paul, as he witnessed Christ on the road to Damascus. James, the brother of Jesus, also obviously had an apostolic role in the church uh, in in Jerusalem. And perhaps Silas and Barnabas as well in in the New Testament. But I think that's it. And I would argue after the death of these men or the generation of men, the gift and office of apostles ceases to exist today. And that's going to be key to my cessationist argument in the last week. Um, but the the apostles established the first churches and taught them authoritatively in a way that no one can do today. And once these first churches were established, God no longer gave the gifts gift of apostles to the church. They weren't necessary. Do you see the logic there? And I would point out that even many continuationists, so folks that believe uh, all the spiritual gifts continue to operate today in the same function, but they agree with my tribe of cessationists, that the gift, this gift of apostleship has ceased. So, in a sense, I guess they're, they're cessationists, which they wouldn't like that. Um, and let me just quickly add, there, there are many Christian teachers out there who would claim to be apostles today. I think, just clearly, we need to be very, very wary of anyone who would claim the name of apostle um, It's a dangerous claim, and I don't think it can be supported by Scripture. And typically, the the men and women who do this are teaching a a dangerous false teaching. But the final gift we'll talk about today, I also think, has has ceased to function. And that's gift number 11 of healing, the gift of healing. And uh, Shriner will also put the gift of miracles in this one as well. So Shriner sees the spiritual gift of healings and miracles to to largely be talking about the same thing. And perhaps healing has more to do with healing a disease or physical ailment. And miracles is an an ability to perform exorcism or or other natural or, or nature miracles is what they're called. And there are some that would argue that the Greek words for gift of healing are put in the plural, which implies that this gift is different than the other gifts and that it's not always available to the one who has the gift. Um, and they do that, I mean, I, I, honest, I just remain very utterly unconvinced of that. I don't see it at all. But I think some people are trying to answer the question that if this gift of healing is operative today, if it exists today, as it was in the New Testament, then why can't those with this gift heal on demand and heal anybody, anybody they want? No one today who claims to have this gift can heal anyone at any time. And so they come up with this conclusion to help defend it. And Schreiner argues that it wouldn't appear to actually be a spiritual gift in any meaningful sense unless the individual who has it has the ability to heal on some regularity or some regular basis. So another argument for the present activity of the gift of healing in the church is that they exist today, the gift of healing and miracles, but they occur much less frequently um, than the time of the New Testament. I think, that, that, I think that's a valid interpretation that Christians can have, and it, and it might be true. But I think the gifting, personally, I think the gift of healing and miracles no longer is operative as a gift in churches. I think with the ceasing of the office and gifting of apostles, the gift of healing ceased as well, and it has been said that the gift of healing and miracles would have been perhaps even necessary for, for the apostles as they, they sought to establish the first churches, as it, as it would affirm their proclamation and apostolic claims in a very powerful in a way that was needed when there was no established church at the time. I think that's a compelling argument. But lastly, before we end, I do think... And this is important. I do think God heals. And I do think God performs miracles or or acts outside of his ordinary means of providence. I think that happens today. And I think it is good and right for us to pray for those things. But I don't think that then necessitates that we believe the gift is active in an individual person in in a unique way today. And again, there's, there's much disagreement on this gift and the gifts of prophecy and tongues, which we'll get into in a few weeks. But those are the spiritual gifts. Any questions before we end? I think we're all out of time, so you might have to just come talk to me after. Um, thank you so much for listening and engaging, and you all are dismissed.